0: So, in the show notes, you'll always be able to find the link to watch the video on our YouTube channel and make sure that you hit subscribe so you don't miss a future episode. Thank you so much for supporting the show and enjoy this week's episode. Welcome back to another episode of the Recruitment Mentors Podcast. I'm your host, Tisha Mazouz, and on this week's episode, I was joined by Matt Hacker, who over the last decade has been building his recruitment career with Aston Carter. Now, over the last two years, he is best known as the back-to-back top performer in the company. And last year, he broke the million-pound billings mark within a year. He has a dual desk. He does a big chunk of it in contract and also a chunk of it in perm. And we spoke about him being honest, doing it in a untraditional way, in the sense that he doesn't work in an inch wide, mile deep niche. He works with various different companies, recruits for various different disciplines, but what he's become world-class at, which we dig into in this episode, is account management, developing relationships, getting the most out of his internal recruitment relationships, and MSP relationships. He's put a massive amount of weight to his success on really committing to providing what he calls VIP gold club treatment. So we discuss it all in this episode, how he manages a day, how he opens up doors, how he builds relationships, and so much more. Enjoy this week's episode. Matt, welcome to the podcast. Hello, how you doing? I'm good, COVID obviously got in the way the first time. Yeah, back in on a very sunny day, it's a it's a lot more sweaty in here than it's ever been.
1: It's very hot. No aircon.
0: <laughs> yeah, no, no <laughs> aircon at all. So uh, we're we're gonna have a, a good old chat in the heat. It's sweaty, but there, there's a lot to cover, which I know, you know, a lot of people that listen to this podcast are gonna be excited to learn and, and take from your journey. Cool. So I guess before I ask you the the million pound question, which we always like to start with, just to give everyone some immediate context, and if you feel like I've missed anything critical with this then then let me know and and help me out but obviously you've been in the recruitment industry for just over a decade so this is a quite nice moment to reflect and think about the last decade because I think you went into recruitment April 2013 yeah right it's been a long
1: time but it's gone very quick
0: (laughs) yeah and so you've been at Aston Carter the entire time yeah yeah obviously you've ended up you know, doing different markets, these things, which we're going to get into that. But have you, you've always, have you always been dual desk or have I got that wrong?
1: So, no, yeah, you've got that wrong. It's, it's, I started off contract, purely contract, okay. moved to dual desk when I set up a new desk, which would have been 2017. 2017, yeah.
0: okay. So 2013, to 2017 contract from 2017 up to now. yeah, It's more dual desk. Yeah. So in terms of what that's looked like, I've got down here because we were you know, trying to map out this performance journey that you've been on. But ultimately, what I've got down here is 2018 performance, 220 grand, 2019 400 grand, 2020 went back down to around 200, 2021 got back up to 580. And then last year, you broke the million pound billings mark. Now, yeah. what that looks like, and we, we can go into more details in this as we have the conversation, but high level stuff Again, feel free to correct me here. How that's broken down, obviously not to the exact pound, but we've got about 850 that was contract and the rest was around uh, perm. So that was around 150 mark.
1: Yeah, I actually double check the figures before I come down. It's about 220 perm. Okay, the cool. rest was contract. Well, so thanks, yeah, not far off. On
0: that. yeah, perfect. So, and then in terms of like, just, just quickly, because then this will help people. I think you've got here, is, are you in, there's 13 people in your including function, me. including you, yeah, right? In my team, I, yeah. And I think you shared with me, you've got... Three people that do sales and are entirely focused on new business. Yep,
1: yeah, that's include four including me.
0: Four including you. And yeah. then you've got the rest are in delivery roles. Yeah. So and we've
1: got one sort of talent lead that's managing the talent associates who are doing yeah. the sourcing.
0: Yeah. Okay, cool. So we'll go into that, but that's like makeup of where we are yeah, today. Yeah, yeah. That journey, obviously, there's loads to uh, uncover here. So actually, why don't we just add, and then let's just add markets because this is what i think is quite cool about your story <laughs> is obviously historically started in like back the banking space right
1: yeah so i was doing accounting and finance within financial services and since 2017 jack of all trades Master of none. I would so, say. so what so what does that mean? Uh,
0: just just quickly for people. So like to give you as an example of different sectors that you've worked with over the last twelve months and some of the, you know, three to four typical roles that you might find yourself working in. Yeah.
1: On. So it's it's basically three three main pillars. So it's sales and marketing, HR and procurement and customer service and admin. And we yeah, deliver perm contract to pretty much any any sector, including banking now, but ninety five percent I'd say of our Current base is outside of banking, so commerce and industry. So it could be media, telco, pharma, uh, technology.
0: Yeah, real variety. Yeah, exactly. Okay, yeah. so I know that would be really helpful for people because people will be thinking that immediately. So let's start with the million pound question because I'm sure you thought about this because something that you shared with me you're passionate about is helping people to become successful in recruitment, right? So, what do you believe are the common characteristics and traits that top-performing recruiters in today's market have? What are the the common things that you often find in people?
1: I would say very high growth mindset. So, being adaptable to change and being able to step outside your comfort zone is a, a trait I see regularly in in the top performers. Secondly, being able to compartmentalize. So, what I mean by that is balancing out the lows from the highs. So not getting too excited once you've done a deal, not getting too down if you've had a dropout, for example, and I think that helps in crisis time. So you rarely see like a really top panicking in a crisis. Usually they can take a step aside, look at the facts and then make an informed uh, decision from mm. there. And also a high value mentality as well. So being able to target the high business opportunities, the high value business opportunities that are going to generate the most revenue for you. Mm. And, being disciplined and being able to say no to bad business, I would nice. say those three things.
0: Are You a football fan? Yeah, I was just thinking. Then the second one, you were just describing Arsenal fans for any football fan yeah. like, <laughs> in terms of so high, so low. But yeah, last I could say
1: about Chelsea I'm a Chelsea fan. I could say <laughs> that about last year as well, but rather not talk about that. <laughs>
0: um, so look, obviously a lot that we want to cover today. I think when we prepared for this, when we you know we spoke about this podcast, I think you you said. You said to me that something that I definitely do want to try and talk about is, you know, an important part of your journey and your story that hopefully, you know, by you sharing, by you talking about your own experiences, it can help other people. Um, And I really commend that. So obviously the, the year where a lot changed for you was... Correct me if I'm wrong here. 2017.
1: It was yeah. It's probably about a year or a year before that or so. Yeah. So oh, I might
0: have been t- sorry. 2015. About yeah. two years into your career. Yeah. Sorry. yeah, About two three years into. Um, so why do not you talk talk to look in in your own words why that was a pivotal year for you and then you know if there's some questions that come up that I think maybe it could be helpful for people to, you know, maybe listen to your response to, and then we can go from there and talk about all the recruitment stuff. But, uh, yeah, I really commended the fact that that was something that you wanted to really make sure that we spoke about. So let, let's start there, if that's okay with yeah, you. Yeah, of
1: course. Yeah, it's quite difficult for me to speak about this, I'll be honest with you, because I'm not really, like, an open book. But, yeah, I appreciate it. Well, I'll try it. and help with that. No, so, no, like, no, that's you, fine. You that's start wherever I'm you want, and then we can to. take it, yeah. Yeah, that's cool. So... Yeah, about two, three years into my recruitment career with Aston Carter, I lost my dad um, to cancer. And a few months after that, I also lost my nan and granddad. So it's all happened within a fairly short space of time. Mm. Never had any real sort of hardship or grief up, in, up until then in my in my life. Aston Carter, really, really good with me, offered me a lot of support. I was off work for, I think it was three months. So I was off for following that. I was seeing a counsellor for, for 18 months, two years. I was on antidepressants. So it's pretty much fair to say, I was rock bottom. Mm. How old were you? So, two, three years, I would have been late 20s, mm. 28, 29. Yeah, and even when I got, got back to work, I was taking a lot of sick days. Like, when I look back now, I was thinking I was off work a lot. Mm. I was didn't even want to leave the house, let alone go to work. Mm. Got through that tough period, and I suppose it all changed really when I was asked to set up this new desk, which was in January, I think, 2017, 17, 2018, 17, yeah. yeah. It's all a bit of a blur now, I can't remember what, what years we... Yeah, no, that's yeah, right, yeah, we,
0: we write those things down. So, no, look, I appreciate you sharing that. I guess, look, I said to you, didn't I, that, you know, two of, I'm, I'm 30 years old, two of my best mates lost their mum to cancer. Mm. It is just such a... Like, when you hear someone is, like, they're really ill or something's bad happened, that is probably one of the top three things that you probably think that, that were cancer, right? So, I guess... Is there anything that you've found because i'm sure you've ended up in different ways connecting with people that might have been through similar things yeah. i'm assuming there but have you you know why don't i ask you that has there been anything that you found be helpful for people that have gone through similar things has there been anything that yeah you've shared with people or people shared with you that you found helpful for anyone listening that you know might be in that right now or might still be in that real I don't feel, I've touched word I haven't actually had, I haven't lost anything, yeah. I haven't gone through that like, proper grief, whereas my partner has. And she always says to me that she feels like grief never really goes away. There'll be moments where, just random moments where you think about your nan passing or these yeah, things, yeah. so you have those moments. So like I don't know if there's anything that you found to be helpful.
1: Yeah, I mean, I mean, I was fortunate in the sense that I'd uh well, uh, girlfriend was a very strong person. She's my wife now at the time. they had good close friends around me, close family around me. To, to I'm not the sort of person that opens up and talks mm. very much about this sort of stuff, but I suppose the counselling and that sort of side, like to maybe going out and speaking to people about it, definitely mm. did help.
0: Why did that help you then, do you think?
1: Just because, like, as I said, I'm not a person that speaks openly about mm. anything, I'm not very emotional, I don't, think I've, I don't think, I can't even remember the last time I cried, really? it was probably when I was a teenager, I can't, mm. I can't remember. <laughs> but, um, so being able to like, actually speak about that, like having an outlet to speak about that, mm. so I suppose, yeah, if you're going through hardship or grief or something, I'll just, I'll just recommend speaking to people about mm. it, even though how difficult that could be, mm. it's just finding, speaking to someone, for me it was easier to speak to someone completely outside, like a counsellor who didn't know me at all, than my close, my close like friends and
0: family. Why do you think that is then? Because you might feel like they're—I don't know—you're protecting them, judging you, or making assumptions about you. Yeah, not necessarily judging, but I'd maybe
1: showing vulnerability, mm. which is something as as a manager now. I'm, um, I think, is actually a good trait to show mm. in, in in a management role. But at that time, I was looking to be strong for maybe everyone else, yeah, um, rather than thinking about thinking about me. Like,
0: did you do you have siblings?
1: Yeah. I got a younger sister, yeah. so so it has been strong for her. Yeah, and... exactly. I don't want to show any vulnerability at all. And that's mm. what that was my. It's not like a decision; it's just my natural. Yeah, yeah.
0: So I guess I I have to ask him because you said it already, and you even said it when preparing for this. Like you've already said, like you're not someone typically that shows emotions or opens up, but then you're saying what was really helpful was opening up. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so right. I guess what, what I wanted to. <laughs> Like there'll be a lot of people that relate to that. So I guess, is there anything that maybe you can share that? Because I'm because I sat down with a guy called Dan who lost his uh, dad to suicide, and like it took him ages to pick up the phone and say to his mum, "I need help." Yeah. But that wasn't like therapy session one. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So is there anything you know looking back that I don't know made you feel more comfortable sharing, or just maybe share anything that for people that. That seems so out of the question to even open up and be vulnerable at all that maybe you can help them go, you know what, if you do arrive at that position, it is helpful and maybe worth trying to get there. But was there anything that helped you get to a point where you was willing to open up? Because I'm sure it just didn't happen overnight because no. you've described yourself.
1: It's sort of like understanding that if you don't do that, it's just going to bottle up and it's just mm. going to get worse and worse and worse and worse. So it's almost like you've, I forced myself to do it. Mm. So as I said, like, I, didn't, I didn't start that for a good few months after. I think mm. I was at work. So it must have been like at least three, four months after everything happened before I'd done that. But yeah, so I, I was just saying the alternative is for it to bottle up, which, which is just worse.
0: Mm. Do you feel like that was starting to happen in those first three to four months then? Was that what sort of yeah, maybe yeah. triggered that maybe yeah. I should speak to someone? And I think
1: all of everyone copes with stuff differently, right? Yeah. For me, it was just to try and ignore everything that's happening and trying to crack on in a way. But yeah. like, that's not always the best thing.
0: Yeah, I mean, pff, I can't even comprehend that. And especially obviously at that that age as well, because it's that's... Like, what I always think about with my friends is, like, your parents, like, if you lose them at that age, like, they miss out on so much. Like, it's mm. sad, man, isn't it? It's, it's, it's tough. Like, my friend who has been the first one in our friendship group to um, have a have a child and, like, unfortunately, he's not going to be able to share that with his mum. And they're the things that you think just happen. Yeah. Like we all get yeah. to experience that, right? So like, seems to
1: like, me, me now, I've got like two, I've got two young girls yeah, as well. And like, since so yeah, and that's why I really
0: commend you talking about it because it's 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 fucking hard.
1: I was gonna, sorry, I was going to say one of the things that that's come out of that as well, like linking it back to sort of recruitment. It's because I've gone through that mm. sort of hardship. I now think like I've got so, so built such a resilience to really anything, especially mm. like recruitment based crises. It. Like yeah. if stuff if something happens now, like I get a dropout or a client says this kind of, yeah, mm. it doesn't like it pales insignificant to what. Do you know yeah, what I mean? that what you've been at totally. time, and I've um, heard people
0: say that because yeah, yeah. it is so much so much of resilience. I feel like what helps me have better chances of overcoming challenges is perspective. And I can quite easily I haven't gone through the hardships that you've gone through, but I've really tried to, you know, be good at going well. At least I'm not homeless or this could be happening or that could be happening. So I'm not surprised that you going through that experience one of the positive things that will come out of it is, you know, then moving forward in your life, things that maybe could really hold people back or people really struggle with, you're like, well, this is nowhere near. Yeah. What I've been through. Yeah, exactly. And sometimes a lot of people don't have that mm. perspective. Yeah I suppose
1: it's something I mean it's one of the the classic interview questions is like can you tell me about a time when you had to bounce back from some sort of hardship or recovered from a situation but obviously like what happened to me is probably more extreme of that but a similar sort of thing.
0: Yeah so you've then obviously gone on to really apply yourself in work so why don't I just start then because we're talking about this why don't like a lot of people because as I shared with you like I did a post saying that I was going to sit down with someone that broke the million-pound mark. Obviously, so many people think that's not possible in their markets, so, you know, really interested by that. So why don't, why don't I do, just start with this, particularly with us all understanding that you've worked in the industry for a decade. Let me just start with, like, what do you think from that moment you've done to ultimately, you know, build a sustainable career and not burn yourself out and not, you know, get into the, the performance that you've got to, let's be honest, unless you tell us otherwise probably involves some sort of sacrifice
1: yeah i read those questions by the way and i thought they were quite funny yes yeah, so like <laughs> what, those questions were quite mad so
0: why, why don't we why don't we just start with that like what do you yeah. think matt has been able to do or what have you had to get better at when it comes to you know not putting everything i know you said you know your girlfriend who's now your wife but like over the this period you could have just thrown everything at work and was all work 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 and then your friendship maybe suffers, your relationship suffers. So yeah. what, what do you think you've done to help maintain that you know, over a long period of time, you're still here, you're showing up, you're doing it, and over the long period of time, you've actually just got better and better? This podcast is proudly partnered with 1UP Sales. So before we dive into our topic for the day, let's take a moment to talk about something crucial to any successful recruitment business. Engagement. When your recruitment consultants are engaged, they're more productive, more efficient, and simply better at what they do. But how do you boost engagement? Well, that is where 1UP Sales comes into play. This innovative sales performance management platform leverages the power of gamification to make work, not just work, but something exciting, competitive, and rewarding, We all know how competitive recruiters are and it's delving into that. It's tapping into that. So with features like dynamic leaderboards, personalized competitions and real-time analytics, 1UP Sales helps to motivate your team, pushing them to achieve their best. And with 1UP Sales, you're not just managing your team, you're inspiring them to greater heights. Engage your consultants, empower your business, let's 1UP your agency. Because you listen to this podcast, you will get 10% off the user price forever. You're not getting this deal anywhere else. Click the show notes, check out the product, book in a conversation, and you're going to get your hands on an absolute game-changing piece of tech that's going to enable you to engage and motivate your recruitment teams. Now, let's get back to the episode.
1: Yeah, this might sound mad, but I I work less hours now than I did when I first started. Mm. But what I've been able to... I suppose, master is like the what I'm doing during the day, like working effectively and working smart as opposed to working long hours. Like I, I get into work probably just a little bit after eight and I'm, I'm gone by six most days unless something mm. urgent, you know, requires me to stay. But yeah, that might sound quite surprising, but I'm, I might turn the laptop on, you know, a couple of hours during the week, tidy up on emails or something like that, but... Mm. I, generally, I, I reckon I was working a, l- a lot longer hours. So I know for a fact, and it was in the office as well, mm. uh, pre-COVID, than I do now.
0: Really?
1: Yeah, hundred <laughs> percent. A lot. Yeah, I mean how, that how, like, a lot many of people. Year,
0: how many years do you think that's been the schedule most um, of the time? The, the last bet, two the, years, the last three years. The better
1: I've got the less I. The less hours I've
0: worked, really.
1: <laughs> I, don't know, I don't know if I'm trying to create the wrong behaviours for people just starting out, but um, but I, th- I think what I, I suppose what I'm trying to say is like you have a look at what you're doing. I suppose it links into one of the things I just said earlier about characteristics. Like I, all I focus in is on on high value business and generating mm. the most revenue. I will not waste time in what I consider bad business, and I'm not just when I re- refer to bad business, I'm not just talking about commercials. Like mm. you know, re- revenue exactly. I'm talking about you know what's my competition, how many other agencies work in this role. How good's my relationship with the hiring manager? How mm. well how well do I know this client? What's the candidate network? Because there's a lot of variables that go into what I'd consider you know, mm. good business and bad business. But yeah. I'm very particular now. And I think that's, a, as I said earlier, I think that's a trait of a lot of high performers that I speak to. They can turn around and say no. Whereas when I first set up a new desk like the Corporate Functions team back in 2018, I was going after everything. Everything I can find my, like, find my hands on, I was going after. And it was mostly per business. It was mostly what I'd call transactional business like spot placements it wasn't like going to be anything repeat business from that it's mostly perm as well and although I'm a dual desk I hate perm really? <laughs> so it's mostly perm to start with so I've learned a lot mm. yeah since then
0: so why don't we then okay because a lot of people as you can imagine wanted to know Matt how does this person set up their day you've given them a bit of a flavor of that but with what you've just shared you would have been describing a lot of people maybe right now With where they are in their career, in terms of like you just said, maybe working on transactional business, a lot of spot business, and you've then obviously gone on a journey to what you've just said. Look, I basically make sure where my time is being spent is in the most valuable places, and we'll get into what you always look for to give you confidence that that's you know like high value business. And you're just giving us a bit of an example. If we can try and cast back to you know those that early on where you was yeah more in that transactional side spot business. Mm What do you think was the first, you know, one or two things you started to do that started, you know, making you take a trajectory to where you are more now, which is working mainly on high-value business, yeah. not working as many long hours. Like, what was the one or two things that you started to change? Was it you started to say no more? Was it that if you found out that this job specifically had been already been with five other agencies was not touching it, like what was the one or two things that you really started to change that then probably was the first domino to... Get it to where it is yeah. more now.
1: It's difficult in that in that first year because it was a te- it was terrible. I think I, I was on my own, but I think I'd done 145k, but that was mm. like um that was there was no there was no clients, there was nothing. So I'd done that off the off the bat, purely new business. But looking back there, I made so many mistakes that I then learned for like future. So if I if I if I knew what I do now, I would have done it totally different. Mm. I would have like concentrated my business development strategy on more what I'd call strategic BD, going after more volume clients. So clients that you're going to win and you're going to get repeat business, they're going to give you roles like on a you know secure PSL, for example. And I aim to get one of two of those. And that's what we adopt in my team now. We're aiming to get each salesperson's aiming to get you know, one to two of those per year.
0: So why is that? Um,
1: Because if you, if if I've got, well, currently I've got, Mm. say, including me, if you've got eight people, salespeople in, sorry, four salespeople in my team, we're bringing on eight PSLs per year. Mm. That's going to enable us to grow going Mm -hmm. forward. Whereas when I started, I was doing more transactional BD. I was chasing deals off the back of leads, maybe a couple of spec CVs, maybe speaking to managers that are back of me referencing candidates and picking up the odd role here and there. So I ended up doing 145k, but it wouldn't surprise me if they were like, I wouldn't do a one deal. I've probably done one deal one on each deal client. With like exactly, client. Yeah. yeah. So if I, if I was to go back, then I'd, I'd put a much better BD strategy in mm. place. Okay. Um, proper prospecting, targeting the right clients, putting a plan, plan in place and, and focusing more on strategic BD. If I if I pick up a few transactional stuff on the way, that's fine, but my sole focus would have been mm. more the the strategic side.
0: All right, I've definitely got questions for you on that. Yeah. But, like, would you say that is the main thing, or is there maybe one other thing that comes to mind when it comes to getting into a position where, yeah, you're not just doing spot business, not just transactional, is there anything? So you said more strategic BD. Yep. Get that. I'm going to ask you questions on that. Was there anything else that you think you would have done, should have done earlier or... From what you've learned, you yeah have now lent into, which means you you've got more repeat business and whatever.
1: At the time, all the deals we were doing were were new business. Whereas I work for a large large company. Looking back, what I should have been doing is maybe looking at maybe legacy existing clients we maybe signed terms with at some point in the last Mm. ten years and not necessarily done anything with. Okay. Because okay, we'll give you an example. One of uh, it's actually our current biggest client was what I'd call like a, at that time was like a dormant account. It was just sitting there. We, we had terms agreed, but no one was doing anything with it. Mm. And I think I discovered that in the second year. And that's now. I mean, this, yeah, it's three, four years later, but that's now our now our biggest. So client, how did so. you
0: discover that? Was you looking on the database? So was you was it just by accident? It's just
1: taking a like a step back and thinking, look, we're a big company. Is there any clients we are working with outside of outside of banking that I can maybe leverage from like a previous relationship? Maybe someone's left or whatever. Mm. I just spoke to our legal team and said, can you give me a list of clients that we've got we've currently got terms with, which are either run out or mm. dormant or whatever. Got back in touch and said, look, I appreciate we this is you know we used to work with you doing this the new point, point of contact going forward. I really want to get back in touch and connect with you again. It just went from there. Mm.
0: It's funny you say that because I've experienced this recently. We had a guy called Oli Perry on the podcast and he said something he's always trying to remind his team is to not forget to look backwards. And yeah. I really like that. Like, it's what you're talking about. Yeah. Because whoever was involved in getting to the point of signing terms did all that hard work. Yeah. And then, like, that that still does, if you did all that hard work and you got to that point of them signing terms... That is something that you can use immediately. Yeah. Whereas, if you're just focusing on net new clients all the time, you're doing all that upfront work to try and get to that point where they trust you enough to sign terms. There's already an element of trust there because you're saying, "Hey, look, we've done this with you before. I'm now, you know, doing this. Do you think it'd be worth having a conversation?" And there's already an element of trust there because whoever has been involved in and in that, is, yeah. you know, has worked right. hard to that. And I think that's something everyone needs to remember: is don't forget to look backwards. And I just did this exercise not too long ago and ended up signing. Two different companies from it, and it is just good to look backwards and follow up because yeah. you wouldn't have got to that point without you know, doing the good work to get to that point. And then that you sort of almost can shortcut things.
1: Yeah. Well, there's several barriers to entry, right? When you mm. when you break a new client, and then just the less the less barriers there are, yeah.
0: the easier it is to break. And that's
1: that's one of them. If you've already got term signed, then that's one barrier gone, right?
0: Mm. Let's talk about the strategic BD thing because that was obviously a lot of a lot of questions came through from people on how does this person approach BD. Now, how many different clients they're working with, whatever. And I'll, I'll be honest, what you just said, I think some people will be surprised. I don't know if you agree what? with that about the PSL getting some big house, you know, big accounts volume, because most com- you know, I'll be honest, most recruiters that I speak to, when they hear the word PSL, they're like, fuck that, I want to speak to the hiring yeah. manager, whatever, yeah. right. And what you're actually saying, and we can go into it, actually what you wish you would have done sooner is actually have, you know, more bigger accounts that you work really hard to get onto the PSL with and then do everything that you can to maximise those relationships Mm -hmm. and you're going to be more confident that you're going to get, you know, way more repeat business, do way more deals, which should mean by the end of the year, you've increased your performance, whatever. Yeah. So let's break down this strategic BD for a piece. So like, I guess, like firstly, you said, this is something that you're actively trying to target your team on. Mm -hmm. What would you say, because you would have had to learn this a hard way, where do people go wrong when it comes to signing big accounts? Where's typically the first most common stumbling block that you've seen that you've then helped people with, do you think? Where do people normally go wrong when it comes to trying to get in front of these big accounts and get on PSLs? Where do people normally go wrong?
1: They can go wrong at any stage. I would say to start with, you need to make sure your prospecting strategy is, mm. is on point and you're targeting the right the right customers. i will say that was a start point. So... Make sure that's backed up by data, analysis, do your market research. The actual prospecting piece as part of the BD takes a lot longer than the actual execution, in my in my opinion, in terms of actual calling the managers or mm. emailing. The longest part it probably takes an hour and a half, maybe a day, to do the actual prospecting. Make sure you're targeting the right people.
0: So let's break that down. Then. So yeah. what, what, do you, what do you mean by that? So are we going, right, so these are the companies that I want to focus on because yeah. of this. These are the types of people that we need to be reaching out to. Like, What are some of the fundamental things that you do in that stage then?
1: So I would always say in terms of targeting, look for companies that are growing. Maybe you've got, maybe for, um, have got high attrition. Have like a lot more than one that you're targeting. I would say to my team, look like target one. If it's a big, like a big client, I'd say target one a day. Mm. A lot of people make the mistake where they maybe have a few meetings and then just give up and mm. move on. Many people make the mistake they don't have enough meetings in that client and move on. With these big ones, they took a long time to, to, to break. So I'd suggest like having a meetings target in place, mm. making sure you go in. You have to map the whole company out, find out who the key stakeholders are, the key decision makers, mm. who's the MSP on site, and then you're constantly linking in. You know, do we already know anyone with this company, and like building up maybe a network of candidates that have left there and getting some information and mm. intelligence as well.
0: Okay. So that, like, basically, the first thing, if you're not being smart with, like, taking time to think about the makeup of these big companies, how you can get in with them, yeah. you're going to struggle. Because it is, I guess, it's just like, where do we even start? Yeah. Right? So that, that that's absolutely fundamental. So have you found, then, what is the typical makeup of, like, the sweet spot of the type of people that you want to build relationships with? Is it the hiring managers? Plus the internal recruiters, plus the like, what what's ended up being this sort of recipe of like, you know, what if we've got a relationship with one person in R and T and one person here, what's that ended up looking like out of interest?
1: So yeah, that's an interesting question because I think I'm different to other people on, okay. and and this uh, different to other recruiters because and um, yeah, different to most recruiters I would say. So a lot of people put an emphasis on meeting the hiring managers. So for me, within the areas I look after, it might be like a marketing director, mm. for example, whereas. I'd say I also focus on the MSP and HR relationships and making sure you develop develop those relationships because.
0: And When you say MSP, just so for people know, sorry to button. Yep. So when you say MSP, what what does that mean? So
1: as well as equivalent of like an RPO on the contract so side. They out, so they, they manage, might
0: outsource. Yeah, yeah you so you might, they might outsource their recruitment to another company that deals with all the.
1: Yeah, so they'll just look after the, all the, I suppose, the administration for contract hiring, and okay. we will be, will be in the, you know, the middle person between the yeah. business and the and the recruitment. Right, yeah.
0: Sorry to buy him, but some people might not know what that is. So yeah, yeah, that's so fine. You were saying about yeah MSP and HR.
1: Yeah, I think it's massively underrated the relationship you have with the MSP because you m- you might have a really good relationship in the business. Like again, I'll give the example of a marketing director. You know, you got a key to room, but the MSP will actually give you the key to the house. They'll they'll mm. have all the intelligence in terms of what's going on in that company you know, future pipeline, what the initiatives are. Again, the, this manager might have that as well from his area, but I think there's a lot of intelligence that could be shared with the MSP. So I do my utmost to build really good relationships with the MSP, making sure everyone who's working on these roles are, are giving them, you know, VIP treatment, making sure we don't break any of the rules, you know, in place, making sure we go back quickly on all their requests. And I just think that's very underrated. I think mm. a lot of, a lot of recruiters out there do focus so much on the manager side that they forget about the value that you can get from HR, MSP, RPO.
0: Mm. So that's ended up being, so it's been hiring manager, HR, MSP ultimately typically. Yeah, I mean,
1: you need to look at who's in... Who's in the supply chain, if you like, mm. from you know, in the process, from when you do a deal, and, and there's there's all these people in the middle, including that's and in that process, nothing is important that you have a relationship with everyone in that process in order to make that deal go as smooth as possible.
0: So let's talk about that for a second, then, because I'm sure there's things that you've helped your team with that you do really well. I guess where you're vulnerable there is you're one of many. I yep. feel like could be. Yep. So you mentioned their VIP treatment. So that could look like. You respect their rules. Mm -hmm. Not trying to cut corners. When you do work on things with them, you're doing your utmost to provide quality. You know, you're really trying to uh, stand out in that way. What else have you found works when it comes to Matt not being just another recruiter on a spreadsheet that they have that gets roles sent to them when we make them available? Like, what else are you doing to stand out to these people? Because I remember there was yeah one of my best clients ended up outsourcing it. Uh, to a company and my initial thought was like fuck yeah that's that's gonna be hard and i did i'd like to think i'm quite good at building relationships and yeah i felt like i did a good job but i still felt vulnerable because like i knew that everyone else was getting them and these things so what have you found works when it comes to really breaking the you know the surface the surface level relationship to matt is now you know more than just another supplier what have you found work on that front this podcast is proudly sponsored by VinCherry. Today, I want to talk to you about the power of the recruitment operating system. Disjointed tech systems are painful for growing recruitment companies. Too much admin, bad data, and no visibility. It's holding back recruitment organizations. Meet VinCherry. Vincery is the creator of the recruitment operating system a modern operating system for recruitment and staffing agencies worldwide. This natively integrated tech platform syncs data and workflows across recruitment agencies front, middle, and back offices. Start off with a suite of modules, a core CRM, ATS, advanced reporting and analytics, video interviewing, and more. That's just their core product. Vincheri also works with a pre integrated access products to expand your tech capabilities. Link up your recruitment websites powered by Volcanic or cover screening and pay and bill with the Fast Track integration. It's time to unite front, middle, and back offices on a single recruitment technology platform. Unleash growth without gravity. Let's go. Find out more on vincheri.io. And because you listen to this podcast, you get a discount. Check it out. Enjoy the rest of the episode.
1: Yeah. So in terms of yeah, tangible things, so if I, if I was to find out some business intel in the company, find out someone's hiring, come, you know, putting putting put a role for approval, I would. This is really strange. It sound strange, but I tell the MSP and recruit is going to be like, wait, why, wait, why are you again. telling them? Say that again. Say that again. <laughs> so I, I have like a, I, I'm quite a straight shoot. I have like an open and honest relationship, yeah. like direct with. Managers or MSP, whoever it is. So, if a marketing director comes to me and says, "You know, we've got this role going for approval for a marketing exec," for example, I would tell the MSP. Okay. I would, I would like so why are you doing that? To, because I want to. I want to be as honest as possible and say, "Look, I've, I've spoken to this manager. They've got a role coming up." And they, when when you I think when you're honest and you're transparent and you've got a relationship with them, they said, "Okay, thanks for you know, thanks for letting me know." And they, they know I'm pipelining CVs in the background, mm. which, which is, you know, which is absolutely fine. But also when they get some intelligence outside of that, who are they going to go to? Right. So they'll come to me. So they'll say, oh, you know, if I'm looking to learn a bit more about the company, you know, the particular area, so like, there's only anyone here in, you think I should be reaching out to, or do you, from your perspective, which areas do you think is going to be busy? Because you have to remember my coverage is quite a few, it's mm. a few different sort of work streams of missions in, in the company. So, you know, if you scratch their back, they'll scratch yours. So I, and that's... Um, I suppose that's the same for
0: everyone, yeah. So, like, basically try and be transparent, share information. Idea is there that they share things with you. Yeah. Interesting. What do we do? Because I remember this happening to me. What you're also vulnerable to is you do all that work with Jeremy, and Jeremy Leaves, from the MSP. And you're like, oh, shit. Like, I've been doing all this great stuff with Jeremy. We've now got Melissa in, I'm back to ground zero. What are we doing there to protect ourselves? Like what proactive things are you doing to make sure that as soon as someone new comes in, because these companies also have a trip? like I found they do can have quite high attrition rates. These MSPs, I don't know what you think, but then you're back to zero essentially. So what, what do you do there to really account manage and make sure you don't just have one relationship. Or as soon as that person leaves to go to another MSP, you're back yeah. to square one. Um-
1: I don't really see that because if, if someone, oh, I've got a good relationship is leaving, I'd know about it and okay. they'd have to serve the notice and I'd make sure there's a handover. I'd have a meeting with that person and the new person. Saying, you know, this is Matt, he does X, Y and Z for all of us and we'll, it'll be a smooth, it's almost like a handover if I was working in, in their team, do really? you know what I mean? That's what I would do. I, would, I wouldn't be, if someone leaves, one of your relationships leaves and you didn't know about it, I don't. I wouldn't class that is as a relationship. relationship? Yeah, that's fair. I mean, I'd, I mean, research has shown that you need to have 16 points of contact with the same person for you to class that as a relationship and that could be an email, a reply, it could be a phone call, a meeting, breakfast, mm. lunch, whatever. So I think if you look at who you would class as relationship, how many times have you met them? Are they a advocate? Are they a coach? Mm. Are they just someone that will respond to you now and again? You'd like there's different strengths of relationships, I would say.
0: To be fair, you've just basically said that when you do get to the point where you get the relationship, they're transparent, you share things if they're leaving they're going to share that with you so then you can be proactive with when they are leaving this would be great if we could do this yeah so that yeah I fair, mean, that's really I've, interesting. I've
1: broken clients from the exact exact, exact example that have gone out and, and joined somewhere else and we've signed them up as a client because mm. they've moved so mm. someone leaving whether it's a manager or MSP, RPO, whatever is not the worst thing because you could end up signing a new <laughs> client
0: if you've done a good job done a good job okay so why don't we paint a bit of a, um, a picture then of how should I frame this like this is clearly important and a core part of your strategy. So I guess what people would probably be keen to know, like when we think about, you know, breaking the million, I think a lot of people are asking, like, you know, how many clients did that come from and these types of things? Yeah, Because what it sounds like is look, if you do all this, if this if you do this really good work, building relationships, the things you're talking about. Obviously, the idea is you're not doing 1s and 2s. You're not doing 3s and 4s throughout the entire year in terms of deals and placements. Mm-hmm. Um, assuming we're talking, you know, 50, 100, over 100. Yeah. So, obviously, we don't want to know who your clients are, but we what I think would be good for people to understand to get a bit of a picture of this is, like, if we do this right and our strategy is to get in with some big clients, get on the PSL, maximise those relationships you know, be really known in that organisation as Matt is someone that delivers and supports on a lot of our roles. So we give him the opportunity and, and these things. Like how many clients do you think percentage wise maybe have contributed to that million mark? Has it been, you know, three, five clients has contributed like 80% of that have come from 80% of that. What does that look like in terms of that client spread?
1: So that year that I hit a million last year that I had 18. So I had a contract base around about 125 on average Yeah, towards the end and that was split across 18 clients.
0: 18 clients yeah and, and then, then the then, perm you was doing was that with those 18 as well
1: yeah that was included with within that so i, I mean i've done 213k on perm but they were across two clients really so the, yeah the, the other most of it was obviously most of it is contracts but yeah, know i mean my average I, I mean our terminology is spread but i'm, I'm sure yeah. people call it billions of revenue but i think my spread at one point was like 25 to 30 30k and i would have Around seven or eight in my top client, so it's actually it's actually worked out quite well because I've quite diversified portfolio mm. in terms of the clients, but not also the clients, but also the, the skilled sets that I've got, which probably sets me up nicely in a way for any external you know, market mm. factors which are gonna, you know, if a project cuts in one client, I've still got the others to fall back on. Yeah, my my actual value of each deal isn't is not massive, is not massive either. Mm. Um, so I'm not talking about. Like really 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 big deals i'm talking about i've got 135 contractors in that amount of spread so mm. it's quite diversified
0: that's interesting that it was over 18 clients and then how many would you say out of that 18 were like would you put in a category of the types of companies you were talking about you're on a psl given msp was that was that most that's, of them
1: no i wouldn't not i wouldn't say most of them maybe maybe half
0: yeah so that's interesting
1: yeah so we, ha- we i mean we're on the psl for accounts where you know, it might be like one or two roles a month mm. that we feel. but we've probably got about a core, in my team, about five, six, that we get regular roles from, mm.
0: yeah. And the reason I wanted to share that is because I feel like the other part to this, and clearly that was a big part of the recipe for you to break that million, is like really maximising those relationships. So why don't we just talk for a second, you've maybe given some of it away and already spoken about it, but I think, you know, we've all been there where you Work extremely hard to get onto the PSL. You know, you get to that point. You're, you know, you're now, you know, you're now part of the party. You're being sent roles. You're being given opportunities. What have you had to get really good at to maximize those opportunities? Because your competitor could have been put on the PSL as well, been at, given access to the same relationships, but then didn't nowhere near as much as you guys did. And I think this probably happens quite a lot. Where and we've had a lot of people share it on here where. A lot of people work really hard to get to the point where they're in the room, and then it's like, "Oh right, okay, now I've got a shitload of work to do to even make the most out of this night. Like, I'm I'm not going to get loads of things handed to me because I'm assuming yeah. it wasn't like right. We had like you had a party internally, like right, guys, run a PSL, and then and then that's <laughs> four weeks it. later, it's like yeah. here's fifty rolls, Matt. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's so a- what what, have you, what do you think you've done? Yeah, what have you had to get really good at in terms of maximizing? those accounts, do you think?
1: So I think it's, what well, it comes down to relationships again. Really? Relationships with MSP and relationships with the hiring managers mm. um, as well. So you just get a really good understanding of, of what they're looking for and, that, and I suppose that comes over time. It's difficult to say because, I mean, I don't know what's normal in, like, other companies. Yeah. i worked at the same company for, sort of, 10 years. I mean, we've, I would say, out of those six, seven I mentioned, I think we're, like, top supply now to, like, four of them mm. uh, out, of, out of the six.
0: Um, so is there, let me ask you this then, like, because I think when we were preparing for this, one of the things that you said to me and you've mentioned it already is, because I, I said to you, what, what do you think Matt's most known for, right? And one of the things that you said was like providing VIP gold club treatment to, you know, MSPs, RPOs, HR relationships, yeah. right? So what might be worth sharing is, is there anything that comes to mind when it comes to besides delivering, besides yeah. Matt is someone that we know if we give a job to and his team, they're probably gonna find us someone. Besides that, is there anything else? You've s- said share information, that that's one yeah. thing. Is there anything else that you think that contributes to that VIP gold club treatment that you know these people really appreciated that maybe other people aren't doing? I don't know. Is any, besides delivering and yeah. besides sharing information? I, th- I
1: think regular regular contact is definitely one of them. Mm. So I have, um, or the, I suppose the, as an account manager I'll have like a regular course get scheduled with them to go to go through like open recs heads up recs all of that mm. sort of stuff and that's probably why right, once Would a week, a once every two weeks so okay. yeah i've got some that like to do it every week some I like to do it every two weeks there's some clients like msps i speak to literally every day mm. right? and they'll just call me sometimes just for a chat yeah but, but you just haven't having i suppose it's just coming back to the relationship piece having regular contact and you have to build up trust over time this doesn't really happen mm. overnight so when i done a million it was the groundwork that i probably put in the, the year or two before that that mm. enabled me to hit a million um, that year because I, I mean I came into that year already doing I think it was like 16, 17k spread a week mm-hmm. so that, that got me off to a good start already but that was the, it was the groundwork that I'd done you know mm-hmm. the year I think it was Covid well I'd only done 200 in the year after that which really helps so it's just building up that trust because I think I do think that MSPs HR have there is a like they, they do look at agencies sometimes as like just going off and doing their own thing speaking yeah. to the business when they're not allowed and basically breaking the rules whereas I, I make sure not just myself and each and my team, that doesn't happen because it takes ages to build up the trust, but then it's something that happens like they can just knock it all down straight away so
0: mm, I like yeah. that, so I think people will be interested and in, don't need like the full agenda, but like what what are like the core things that you always go over typically like what is it that they find helpful, what is it that they typically wanna you know, understand, find out is it the number of people that you guys have reached out to that week? Is it the number of CVs that you've sent over? What are the typical things that you're going over in those meetings that they really appreciate?
1: Yeah, so I think um, always communicating the challenges you're having on the difficult roles so if there's like sourcing challenges making sure you're letting them know like before the deadline so if there's like we, typically the roles we'll have in contracts will be 40 hour deadline if we're looking like we're, we're really struggling this might be a niche skill set we'll let the we'll let the MSP know just so you know this is what we're struggling on so just that communication piece again and sharing intelligence which we have obviously already already mentioned and I think a lot a lot of the time it's just if you if you're good at sending if you're if you've got a good if you've got a good source, a good delivery team that's sending good candidates, that's almost half the battle because that's what the end mm-hmm. of their day, they, they want to hit the SLAs. That's mm-hmm. what they want as quickly as possible. Mm-hmm. So if you're sending good candidates, you're filling the roles quickly, then that's the most important thing.
0: Yeah, I appreciate you sharing that. So what, why don't we talk about what does this day of yours look like then? Because I think that's what a lot of people would be curious about. We've spoken about, I think you shared with us what strategies work for you, getting in with these big accounts and maximising them. We've spoken a lot about relationships, these types of things. But I think a lot of people were really curious around, particularly with you dual desking, like, how does Matt set up his day? Like, what does that look like? And you've said what you've got really good at is making sure that you're, you know, spending time on the things that hopefully are going to equate to, you know, the outcomes that you're hoping for rather than spending loads of time on things that maybe aren't high value. So let's talk about this eight to six then that you typically try and, that you typically uh, have experienced. Like what, because obviously you manage a team as well. Yeah. So talk to us a bit about how you structure a day. Like, what does that look like?
1: So we have a, at 8.30, like a, like a team meeting to go over all the open recs. That, have, mm. that happens every day. Like candidates that are interviewing, any deals that we're looking to close. I run like a, a, a sales meeting straight after that as well with the sales guys, looking to see what meetings they've got booked in, what they had just, uh, what meetings they had yesterday, what, what outcomes of their meetings did they have yesterday. Going through their like manager spreadsheet, mm. looking who they're targeting. So it's quite a detailed one every day. Outside of like those particular meetings, is different. Like I, I usually plan for the day, like the next day, the day, uh, the, the, the day before in the evening because anything can happen. Sort of during you know mm. during that day. Yeah, so it's yeah very like like an agile an agile process. Yeah, like mm. it can it can change whenever. But um, what like yeah. the,
0: the the sort of normal thing the normal normal non negotiable. So you've got setting the team up, sales team overall like. Reps we've got open but then typically what would end up taking a bulk of your time or what do you typically find yourself doing most of the time because that's going to be the things that are probably going to be the highest leverage activities that you're going to be doing.
1: Yeah so if I'm putting my sales hat on an hour and a half will be spent on pros- prospecting mm. every day so looking at the looking at the account I'm going to be targeting then I would spend an hour on execution mm. so that would be personalised outreach whether it be calls or, or emails. Um, I might have a couple of meetings already scheduled in that day. I might have some account management stuff to do as well in that day. Mm. One-to-ones, et cetera.
0: How have you helped your team? Because I know this is something a lot of managers and recruiters struggle with. Because like a common sense, I think right now as well, a lot of recruitment leaders can sort of easily hear their team go, oh, I haven't ended up doing that BD or I haven't ended up doing this. Like how have you helped your team understand what are the true priorities and what they should be given more time to rather than all these other things that make you feel good that you've got it done. Like, how have you helped to? Because um, that that can be difficult for a lot of people.
1: Yeah, I and people get sidetracked, right? Mm. But I think you, as a as a non-negotiable for a salesperson, that is their job, right? It's to mm. is to do BD. So if I'd I'd be interested, I'll sit them down. and say, okay, what's getting in your way of doing this? You know, what is sidetracking you away from doing your job? Mm. And I'd actually sit, yeah, sit down with them and go through that because it's like it comes back to to. to uh, like KPIs which are you know which are put in place. They're non negotiable. They're based on, you know, if you hit these, mm. you should hit target. you know, that's why these are in place. So it'll just come yeah, come back to that.
0: And then as a manager, I'm curious, like what are the dashboards that you're always keeping an eye on? What are the like the key metrics that you're always keeping an eye on that makes you feel like you've got a good sense of you being on track or not on track to hit the the targets that you've set?
1: Yep. So for sales it would be Uh, meetings and recs picked up and over the the course of a longer period it'll be clients broken Mm -hmm. you know accounts broken for talent it'll be people spoken to candidates spoken to um, submittals interviews candidate meetings
0: love that curious with the sales people sorry it's a bit hot yeah I know for um, sales people It's like all downstream from from having that client meeting. What are you finding at the moment be the most effective way for your team to get that first client meeting? Because that's often the most difficult to get in.
1: Making sure their outreach is really personalised. So I'm not a big, well, I'm saying not a big fan. That's probably an understatement. I hate cold calling. I don't agree with it. I think it's a waste of time. It's coming back to working smart, and I don't think cold calling is working smart. And best use of your time. I suggest to my sales team that they reach out to at least 20 new managers a day, whether it would be an email, personalised email, or a call. But each, even, that would be to one client, but each of those emails would be personalised and different. One even client? To, well, yeah, I'd, I'd, uh, we we'd try and target one one a day. Right. So one, so try and target one client a day, but...
0: 20 different people in there.
1: Yeah, 20 different people in there, but each of those will be different because they would each be personalised.
0: And in, like, different parts of the business.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's, it's, I suppose it's... Um, it might be different for myself because, we, you know, we look after different um, areas. But yeah, that's what we were target on.
0: Personalised, I feel like, is quite an overused word these days. Yeah. So like for me, for me when I, because I, I agree with you on the personalised piece, I would definitely argue for me with the calling piece. It's more about like being smart with what you can do before you make that call. But the call is is effective. But like, it's like, what has Matt done before, you know, he's called me? that could potentially give me a better chance of being given that moment to explain why I've called specifically them. So, yeah, I do think, is it a good use of time to just call you? And I haven't really spent any time thinking about why I'm calling you and I haven't really thought about my value proposition and these things. But if you have got an email, you know, if you emailed me and said, hey, look, over, you know, that you know the uh, other guys in such and such department, we've delivered this hiring project for them, mentioned that you're struggling with a few things. Do you think you'd you know, would you be against having a chat? Yep. I didn't reply to you, but then you called me and then, you know, you used that to try and you know, be part of the conversation. I think that's just a smarter way of using the phone. But I actually do think now if you're willing to pick up the phone, it actually gives you a competitive advantage because so many people are shit scared of doing that. Do you think so? Yeah, 100%. <laughs> right, okay.
1: <laughs> I mean, I don't see that. I mean, I'd, I'd worry if, if there's a salesperson yeah. um, and that's a job to call managers. If, if they're scared of picking up the phone, that would be a worry for me.
0: <laughs> yeah, but it's like let's break down, like, because you've said it's an understatement to say that you don't like phone calls, right? BD Col- calls. Yeah, uh, yeah, I'm talking calls.
1: about cold calls. I mean, like the, the, an intro call to a manager could be fairly similar, really, to a personalised email, mm. right? So when I say I don't, I don't like cold calls, I don't like blankets. The same thing, the same reason. I don't like blanket emails going out to mm. you know every. You know, head of or director mm. in an industry, I don't think it's a good, good, good way to. Yeah, operate. so what,
0: what, when you say personalized, because clearly you're passionate about that, what, like what does that mean for you personally? So it
1: could, a personalized trigger or, or like the first line of an email could be anything from, like you just said, you could have been int- introduced by someone else, you could name drop someone in the company, mm. it could be something that that manager posted on LinkedIn, you know, shared. Could have posted a role mm. six months ago. Could it be something about his area that you found out? You know, a bit of intelligence you found out from a candidate or in, in the research you've done. So yeah, it's quite. It, it could be. It could be anything, but as long as it's personalised to that person, and then bring in. I suppose the business challenge is like what you just said there. I understand. You mm. know, you might be struggling with these hires, or it could be more of a, just a general challenge in the market. Mm. And then you'd hopefully have some sort of solution where you've, you've delivered that for. Either a competitor or someone else within that company,
0: and then you're getting your your team to then follow up with phone calls and stuff like that. You don't yeah, think that's well, a waste of time. You're thinking, you're saying, if I have a list of companies, I've done any research on them at all, and I'm just calling through yeah, yeah. a list, how useful is that? How good of a yeah, time? Yeah, I is suppose
1: that when I, when I think of cold call, I, I'm that's what I'm talking about. Yeah, I'm talking about sending the same in mail or email and to every single one. It's not targeted. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. Curious, getting a bit granular here. What do you think? Because I'm sure you help your team with this. What do you think a good client meeting looks like? Okay. So I think you need to have a
1: really specific agenda on what you're looking to get out. Mm. And you can maybe have two to three objectives you're looking to get out of that meeting. Typically these meetings will last about half an hour, maybe an hour if you're lucky. And then that agenda, again, this should be different for every meeting you have, but that agenda should be based around the outcomes that you're, you're, looking, you're looking for. Mm. So Give that example. would be tailored, right? Okay, Give so <laughs> I don't know. You, you might you, you, the, the the outcome could be you, you might know this person's got a role. For example, so the outcome could be you're looking to you know looking to pick up a role. Mm-hmm. It could be the outcome you, you might be looking to map out his team. So how is his team set up? Is it contract perm? Does he have any consultants or whatever? So I would make sure my agenda was based around based around that, and I had those questions lined up for that for that meeting. Nice.
0: Oh, are so your team are doing a lot of that meetings a v- video these days or are you trying to push more face to face? Yeah, stuff, a lot or? of the
1: yeah, to be fair, I mean, we're based in London. I mean, a lot of the um clients we work with outside of London. But we do UK UK and Ireland, but um, when we can do we we do mainly sort of lunches and breakfasts, but not too many coffee meets anymore. Mm-hmm. It's mainly breakfast lunches, yeah.
0: Curious. Just cuz like this is obviously been a core cool part of your strategy now, and I'm going to hit you with some questions that people uh shared. Uh A very common objection that recruiters say that they find hard to deal with is the PSL one. So I'm just curious to like hear your thoughts on navigating that Mm -hmm. objection because I feel like almost you're like, well, that's great. Most of our clients, we work on a PSL Mm -hmm. and we're one of their top providers. So like when you know, when I'm your target customer Mm -hmm. and you speak to me and I say, look, I'm sorry, mate, we've got a PSL in place. Like, what are the the typical things that you help you, you know, your team with? And like, how do you typically navigate that? Because, yeah, like that's, that's your world, it seems.
1: Yeah, well, as an objection, I would, I would ask open questions just to find out how is he finding that process Mm. you know what is the PSL doing for you Um, because there there will be a challenge in there somewhere um and so like how how are the PSL performing um what would you say they're good at what would you say they're not good at and try and get that business challenge out of him that pain point in order to then provide provide that solution
0: what's the most common one that you typically uncover um
1: probably poor poor quality cvs is is quite Mm. a common one wrong type of cvs or maybe speed speed to delivery is probably another one especially especially in contracts. They're probably the biggest two, I would say, and I think those two things are something that we're quite well equipped and quite set up well on.
0: And if, again, curious, because you're not going to be able to go from that f- that phone call to but, okay, Matt, sounds great. Let me sign you into the PSL. It doesn't quite work like that. Yeah. So I'm just curious because these types of companies that you're targeting, if I say to you, you know what, Matt, that sounds great and that's, you know, what we want to be able to say our PSL is doing, but they're not. But, we don't renew until six months or yeah. these things, what is typically the thing in between maybe the moments where you can generally have an opportunity to be considered and get onto PSL? What, what are you trying to make sure happens in the meantime? Are you trying to get meetings in with them to at least educate them on how you've had other companies like theirs, get to know them? Are you trying to just be, you know, given at least a sliver of an opportunity to say, look, if they do continue to struggle, please give them an opportunity and we can sort of show what we can do. Like yeah. what are the typical things that, you try and lean on in between the moments where you just literally can't get on the PSL because you'll that'll be the case, right? Yeah,
1: I mean, we get that quite a lot as well with like PSL reviews. I mean, you know, sometimes there's not much you can do if that is genuine, but we would, um, you know, one of the things you just said, we'd ask for an opportunity, just give us a difficult opportunity that's not been filled, and we'll showcase what we can do mm. with that. We would also share because we, we have regularly what we call QBRs, like quarterly business reviews with our MSPs and HR and they'll they'll provide us actual statistics on, you know, the deals that we're doing, how quickly we deliver and it's got all, it's everything there and we would, with their permission, we would share that information with, with prospective clients yeah. and so so they can, they can show us or we can even say, look, you, we'll give you the details, go and speak to them, find out how good we are mm. to make sure we're, when it does come to the review, we're in a good spot.
0: Yeah, I love that. So many recruiters don't do enough of that because there's what I can sit here and feel your passion and, and have you say like the things you can do for me, but then there's a whole other thing, a whole other, like, it's a no, it will feel completely different if I've got another MSP saying, this is what they did, and here are the sort of case studies of what they've done for us over the last six, 12 months. Yeah. So if, if you're listening to this and you haven't got any case studies wrapped up, and you're not using them, like, you you seriously are missing a trick. Yeah, I think that's, yeah. So I'm, I'm not surprised actually- you said that. That's a great way, again, and you've got more chance of having these types of things, I guess, potentially, cuz like you said these MSPs have to sit hit their SLAs that's what they really care about so this is all going to be measured on their end let alone not just your end yeah Exactly. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? So, to be able to showcase that. So, let me hit you with some quick fire questions then, because I want to make sure I've, I've uh, covered the things that people have asked. Don't worry, I'm not going to like ask new you. Round, some, I'm going to ask you some of the, the rogue ones uh, that were on there. <laughs> so, I think we've gone through a lot of the ones where people wanted to know, you know, breakdown on perm contract. I quite like this one. Like, why, if I was to say to you, why do clients work with you and your team? How would you answer that? I think a few people were curious on that on Like, why do you think they give you the work? Why do you think clients work with you guys over others?
1: Yeah, I, th- I think it's probably the stuff of the, some of the stuff I've already mentioned in terms mm. of like just being good at what we do, making sure we're delivering delivering on the roles we say we're going to deliver on, not over you know over promising and under delivering, uh, making sure we have the regular contacts. I mean, this is this is the feedback that we receive when we when we do our annual mm. uh, feedback to clients. That's the sort of stuff we receive in terms of just doing what we we say we're going to do.
0: This will be an interesting one. So you've spoken to us about the breakdown of the client's repeat business. Are you doing any sort of productization of your service like or is it just, you know, like with the, you know, the contractor spread that you spoke about? Are you sort of saying, well, look, why don't you work with us to deal with uh, helping you find these 15 contractors or you're always talking about the individual? Like, do you know, what I mean, yeah. have you done anything like that?
1: Yeah, we have done exclusive business on contract mm. as well, like outside of the, what we'd say, the usual, usual yeah. methods or usual programme. And then that um, that's obviously what we're classed as very, like, you know, good good business. I've got, like, a repeat project that, I, that you know, that probably brings me about 10 deals a quarter that I get mm. from, which is good. I mean... Um,
0: but is most of it contingent then, is that fair?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's mostly contingent. I mean, yeah, from, from a contract perspective. But, I mean, on average, last year, I was doing probably about 25 to 35 deals a mm. quarter, so probably about two or three a week. Mm. My biggest quarter was I think Q3, I've done like 45 deals, and I think maybe 10 of those are on exclusive. Really?
0: So Okay. So I think you spoke, a lot of people were interested in, you know, what's been the most effective way for you to win business. So I'm right in saying I feel like from today, it's about really doubling down that personalised approach, really doing the upfront work of understanding who you're contacting, Understanding as much you can about their business, mapping out the people in the stakeholders in that organization, and then being really smart with how you're reaching out to them, and then just being consistent. You know, one, you know, one company a day, twenty people. That's what it seemed like you you shared today.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, um, just coming back to that strategic BD versus more transactional. Like when you're prospecting your clients, you, the, mm. the last thing you want to do is like book one meeting in thirty different clients in, in a quarter. You know, that's yeah, not good, yeah. that you're not going to break clients from doing that to so make sure you're. Smart with the time that you're, yeah, that you're using and going after better
0: business. And I think a lot of people would be curious about this. And then I'll have one more question. But how is it set up in terms of like your like team then? Because a lot of people be like, okay, yeah, Matt's done a million, but how many how many split deals is he doing? How many you know how many people has he got supporting them? Because you obviously we've spoken about the structure of the team, you've got the sales team. How. Obviously, we don't need to know the percentage of like what you know delivery people get to you. I'm not bothered about that. But like, what what does it actually look like? Have you got you know you're bringing the clients? You're spending time on the account management side. Are you doing any of the candidate fulfillment? Do you have you know one or two people specifically just work with you? Like what what does that typically look like? So
1: yeah, so we we used to be a 360 model, um, Mm. and we moved to 180. And I'd say just from my own experience, I think that's the right thing to do if you want to grow your business Mm. quickly and aggressively. I've always been a I suppose an advocate of having the you know, the best people, if you're really good at sales, you should be focused on that and not worrying about sourcing. And if you're really good on the candidate mm. fulfilment side, you should be specialising and become a master in that and not worrying about anything else. Since we moved to that model, it was only recently, it was like halfway through or towards the end of last year. We're still in the sort of transition phase, but we can see the potential benefits from that now. Mm. In our team we've got so we've got thirteen, so we've got one talent talent lead and we've got eight recruiters. So like talent associates, which do the sourcing. So we've got like two talent associates per salesperson. Per salesperson right. Yeah. And they're more specialist in say, our child procurement, sales mm. and marketing and customer service and admin. Right. So you, you potentially have like two, yeah, two per salesperson on that side. Yeah. So that's how we're set So up.
0: that, so basically you're, you're producing that with a team of ultimately like, there's three of you ultimately, it seems. What do you mean? So you, you creating, you know, you doing a million that's you and then two other people supporting you. So, that, right? yeah,
1: in terms of what you would say, split deals, is not necessarily the same two people, though, because... No, no, but,
0: yeah, but, like, in terms of, like, that isn't just... a How how's Matt done that on his own? You haven't done that on your own, that's been a team effort, yeah, right? Yeah. But, obviously, a huge factor of even getting to that point is having the opportunity and, and having the companies to do that with. But the way you've set it up is you've always got... Two people or people that you can lean on to help you fulfill those those jobs. Basically, right?
1: look after the look after the sourcing. Yeah. yeah, so it's quite rare. I mean, sometimes now and again I'll have to get involved in mm. sourcing uh, to try and support on the more difficult roles. But it's my job to go and pick up the roles. It's their job to to find the candidates. Mm.
0: All right. Well, look. Let's just end with this then. Like decades a long time. Yeah. A lot of people, you know, listen to this podcast. Would love to get to the opportunity to, you know. Break a million, achieve their goals, or get into this industry to achieve big things. So, what would you, you know, be your parting advice for anyone that wants to, you know, aspire to be successful as they hope when they join the industry? Like, what, what would you say is the the sort of one thing that maybe you continue to find yourself giving the advice to the people around you and your team? What, what do you want to leave people with?
1: <laughs> so, I would say, um, yeah, to just make sure. Um, it comes out to like i suppose comes out to accountability I'd say I'd say when you make mistakes make sure you learn from them and if something happens like as only you've got a drop out on a candidate for example don't blame everyone else for it don't blame the mm. candidate um, don't blame the client don't blame the recruitment gods looking down on you like what could you have done differently in that situation so if you've had a dropout why is that drop out you know did you qualify that candidate properly and if you go into that everything that you do in recruitment with the right mindset in terms of learning from your mistakes and, and not blaming everyone else all the time which unfortunately is like a a natural reaction sometimes to when something goes wrong I think you would always learn and develop and I'm still doing that now when I make mistakes now it's like okay what should I've done differently did I handle that correctly I'd say that's probably one of the most important things I would say
0: it has been a pleasure thank you thank you very much cheers mate thank you so much for listening to this week's episode I hope there were plenty of golden nuggets for you to take away As you'll know, I'm your host here of the Recruitment Mentors podcast, but I'm also the founder of Recruitment Mentors. We're an online subscription-based learning and education platform. We're on a mission to help thousands of recruiters achieve their professional goals and successfully progress their careers through modern and engaging online learning. If you're a recruitment business owner listening to this, there's a good chance that you value self-development, personal development. You're trying to develop a culture of continuous improvement. But we've partnered with a number of grown recruitment companies who were struggling to understand how they can invest more in their people, how they can upskill them more quickly without spending more time, without having to spend thousands of pounds of external trainers. And we've ended up being a really great fit, modern fit for recruitment teams.